Our scripture, this, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 13 through 14. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Glad you're here today, and it's good for us to be together. As Tom mentioned in his prayer, in many ways, this has been a difficult week for many in this church family, and overall for us as a church family. Almost like the recent storm pattern, it seems like death has just been a dark cloud that has been hovering over this church family over the past few days, really the past week. There have been at least 10 deaths directly impacting uh, this church family over the past week or so. And so there are lots of heavy hearts. And although we grieve differently than the world grieves, as Paul reminds us, because we don't grieve without hope. We have hope in our grief and through our grief because we know that Jesus is alive and that we too will be alive even after this life here on this earth in the physical body. And yet, pain needs to be acknowledged and grief needs to be experienced. Certainly we want to do that. And yet maybe as you consider your own life and where you are right now, maybe you find yourself in a different valley, maybe not the the valley of the shadow of death, literally, but maybe it's a different dark valley. All kinds of stresses and, and struggles come our way in this broken world, and so maybe you're facing family crisis or marital problems or financial stress or big decisions or or some other struggle that is happening. And it's in times like this, when we walk through these valleys, it's in times like this when things aren't always as we wish they were, that we ask some very, very fundamental questions, some big questions. In fact, most Christians at some point in their lives look to the heavens and they ask the question, why? Why, God? Why is this happening? Why do you allow this to happen? Why am I going through this? Why do good people suffer? Why do innocent children suffer? And so we ask different variations of that why question, where are you, God? How does this fit into your will, God? And those are natural questions. In fact, really a natural response to faith intersecting life and loss. I like what writer John Piper says in his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence. He says, life is not lived in a straight line, whereas you go from one blessing to the next and then heaven. He says, life is filled with twists and turns, switchback after switchback. But he says, that's why so many stories in the Bible teach us something. They remind us that God is for us in all those strange turns. He says, God is not just showing up after the trouble and trying to clean it up. He is plotting the course. He is managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So as we begin in our message today, one thing I want you 
to be assured of, and that is that God is always at work. Even when you can't see it, even when you can't understand it, even when you might do it a different way, God is always at work. And sometimes I wish I just had a pair of spiritual glasses. Wouldn't that be nice? If you just had a pair of of spiritual glasses that you could put on and you could view the world or your circumstances or this situation through the lenses of God and you could see God's purpose, you could see what God is doing behind and through and in that circumstance, wouldn't it be nice? And yet that's what faith is. Faith and trust in our Lord is viewing our circumstances, viewing life, even viewing tragedy through the eyes of of faith not necessarily knowing what God is up to but knowing that he is up to something because God is always at work does he cause or approve of everything that happens in this world everything that happens in your life no I don't I don't think so I really don't we live in a broken world and we are flawed people with free will But what I do believe is that God walks with us, that he walks beside us through those twists and those turns, and that he is accomplishing, even through those darkest days and those difficult times, he is accomplishing his goodwill, and that Christ is, in fact, glorified. And so today in our 180 series, we see God at work in someone's life, in someone's heart, Her name is Lydia. Her story is in Acts chapter 16. And on the surface, Luke reports this conversion story as though he is a reporter on the scene, writing down the facts and then just conveying them to us. But if you look closer, if you look in the context of what's happening, as the story unfolds, if you look behind the curtain, below the surface, I think you will see some really important things about God, about us. And maybe we can do that this morning. Acts chapter 16, her story begins in verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Paul and his fellow missionaries arrive at this city called Philippi, a Roman colony named after the the father of Alexander the Great, Philip II. This was a place that came under Roman rule in 168 B.C., about 200 years before this story. Because it was so Roman, it's no surprise that there doesn't seem to be a Jewish synagogue in the city of Philippi. It took 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. And so there's no synagogue, evidently. But my guess is, because Paul's custom, his 
mode of operation was when he arrived into a city to go into that synagogue and to preach and to teach Jesus, that when he went to Philippi and he doesn't find a synagogue, he begins asking people, hey, where do the Jews meet? Where do they get together? Well, we aren't sure, but we hear some gather outside the city by the river. You see, it wasn't uncommon when there wasn't a synagogue, or even sometimes when there was, for Jewish people to meet by bodies of water so that they could perform their uh, cleansing rituals. They could use the water for that purpose. And so maybe Paul overhears that there is a group of Jews out by the river outside the city, and so he goes out there, and he finds a group of women gathered there. It's interesting, by the way, the prominence that Luke gives to women throughout the book of Acts which is so contrary to the cultural norms of his day and certainly to what is happening in Judaism. And yet I think it's a reminder to all of us of the place and the prominence and the value that everyone has, including women, in the kingdom of God. And so Paul encounters these women, and he does what I am sure he always does, He shares the gospel. One particular woman is there. We're introduced to her. Her name is Lydia. And we know a couple of things about Lydia. First of all, we know that she is a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. This is a city known for its purple dye, so it makes sense that that's what she does. It's a city belonging to the ancient kingdom of Lydia, which probably explains her name. And most scholars agree that Lydia was probably a person of some wealth because purple cloth was a luxury item. I mean, when you think purple, you think royalty. And so there's a good chance that she has some wealth. In fact, remember, she has a home because she invites them into her home after all of this happens. And even though she was a person of standing, even though she was a person who had some level of wealth, she didn't have everything she needed, did she? She didn't find what she was looking for that would sustain her, that would satisfy her. There was still something else, which brings us to the second thing we know about Lydia. She was a worshiper of God, a God worshiper. This was a a name given to Gentiles who were drawn to the monotheistic religion of the Jews. Specifically, they were drawn to their God, the God, Yahweh God. And it doesn't mean necessarily that these Gentiles conformed to the Jewish law, but it does mean that they worshipped and prayed to the one and only God. And certainly that is the case with Lydia. And so Paul is there, and he does what he always does. He speaks of Jesus. He tells who Jesus is. He tells why he lived on this earth, that he died that he was buried, but he did not stay in the grave, that God raised him from the grave, that Jesus came to, be, to bring deliverance and freedom and salvation through that death and resurrection. Well, Lydia responds in verse 15. She and the members of her household who heard and believed this message Paul was preaching, they respond to that message the same way Everyone in Acts responds to the gospel the same way we respond to the gospel today. They were baptized. Right after she's baptized, notice what she does. 
She puts that love into action and she, she offers hospitality. Come and stay at our house. And I like that little sentence there. She persuaded us. <laughs> she twisted our arm. I don't know if it was difficult to persuade them, but Lydia managed to persuade them to stay at her house. And so remember I said, if you look more closely at this story, if you look at the larger context, if you look behind the scenes, you notice a couple of really important things happening here. And both of these things have to do with the heart. First of all, with God's heart. No one is beyond the reach, the love, the grace, the mercy of God. No one. You see, I think God has a heart for the outsider. In many ways, Lydia was an outsider. Yes, she had wealth, some level of wealth, but where is she worshiping God? The text is very clear to tell us that it is outside the city gate. She is by the river, outside. And maybe that is because there wasn't a synagogue. Maybe that is because of the cleansing rituals and the convenience of the water. But maybe it's also because they didn't want them in town. They weren't welcome in, the, in, in, in town, in Philippi. She was, in many ways, an outsider. After all, she was a Gentile. She wasn't part of the covenant people of God. I also don't think it's a mistake that the text, the scriptures, are very clear that Jesus was crucified outside the city. Now, there's all kinds of political and social reasons for that. But I think one of the things it reminds us is that Jesus knows what it's like to be an outsider. In so many ways, Jesus came to this earth, and who did he interact with? Those who were considered outsiders. Those that no one else had the time of day for. Those who everyone else wrote off. You see, I believe God has a heart for the outsider. No one is beyond the reach of God's love. In fact, if you look at this context, the whole chapter, Acts chapter 16, you will see encounters with three different people. You have Lydia here, a Gentile, a Gentile woman. You have a female slave who has this ability to predict the future. She has some kind of ability. It's called a spirit in the text. Maybe it's a crystal ball. Maybe it's a magic eight ball. She has something that she can predict the future, and Paul interacts with her. And then you have the Philippian jailer a little bit later, which we'll talk about next week. Now, you think about three of the most unlikely people, three of the most outsiders that you could have a female Gentile a girl slave and a Philippian jailer and yet I think the story is arranged in this way not just because of the chronologic event the chronological order of events but also of what it says about the heart of God because God has a heart for the outsider and may we as the church always, always reflect the far-reaching, inclusive nature of God's heart. May we always welcome the outsider and minister to those who are marginalized. And that goes for you. If you feel like you've done so much wrong in your life, or there's so much sin, or your past is so sordid and dark that God can't love you, or you've had so many difficult times and so much mistreatment in your life that you think you have no value, then you need to stop listening to the voice of Satan because that's Satan's voice. 
And you need to hear the voice of God who loves you dearly, who went way out of his way. I mean, think about how much Jesus gave up. Obviously his life, but think about how much he gave up just to come here and dwell among us. Why would he do that unless he truly loved you? In a few weeks, we're going to begin a a new sermon series simply called, Who Am I? The idea is that we need to know who we are. The Bible has a lot to say about who we are. So does the world, doesn't it? Your friends are trying to tell you who you are. You have pressure to be a certain person, to fulfill this certain image. There's all these voices in the world saying who you are, who you should be. And God says, let me tell you who you are. We're going to walk through some of those things in Scripture that describe who we are as children of God. But I can assure you, one thing you are is incredibly valued and loved by God. God has a heart for you. The second thing I want you to notice has to do with another heart, and that's Lydia's heart. Did you notice how it was told by Luke in the text, how he framed it? Back in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond or to receive Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart. Luke reports what is happening here, not just on a human realm, human experience, what you can see, what you can observe. He says there's something else happening here. He didn't have to say it that way. How did he know the Lord opened her heart? Because he put on those glasses. He could see with spiritual vision, through the eyes of faith. It was obvious the Lord had opened her heart. And so he reports not just on what is seen, but what is unseen. Well, what does it mean that the Lord opened her heart? Sometimes that kind of language makes us a little uncomfortable, right, if we're honest? Someone says, the Lord opened my heart to this, or the Lord put this on my heart, and we're like, I don't know. Could that be true? Especially when we go to Scripture and we see that sometimes the Lord hardens people's hearts. Do you remember Pharaoh? When God gets Moses in the locker room, is giving him the pregame speech. It's time for Operation Exodus with all the plagues. Remember all the plagues? Pharaoh in Egypt holding the children, children of Israel as slaves. God says, it's time for my people to go. Moses, you're going to lead them. Do you remember what he tells Moses about Pharaoh? Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. Listen to this. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now you say, now wait a second. That doesn't make sense. How could a loving God harden someone's heart? In our minds, we just can't reconcile that. That just doesn't make good sense. And that's a great question. But we need to look more closely at what really is happening here with Pharaoh, but also with Lydia. You see, Pharaoh was already defiant against God, against God's people, who, by the way, were his very useful slaves in Egypt. He himself was hardening his own heart. In fact, the text says that multiple times as the story unfolds. 
One example is right after the flies. Remember the plague of the flies? Finally, Pharaoh's had enough. He says, that's enough. Okay, okay. So God, through Moses, brings the flies out. No more flies. And then what happens? Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. But this time also, Pharaoh did what? Hardened his heart and would not let the people go. You see, Pharaoh's heart was already closed off and calloused toward God. By the time God hardened his heart, Pharaoh had already calloused and hardened his own heart. And so basically what God is doing with Pharaoh is just giving him what he wants. He's allowing his heart to continue down that path. He's not interceding or interrupting what Pharaoh has already chosen in his free will. The same goes for Lydia, right? Do you remember who she is? She's a worshiper of God. The law of God is not hers. It doesn't belong to her people. She is on the outside, and yet she is seeking. She she is searching for God. Her heart was already set on God. And so what does God do? He simply gives her what she's looking for. He simply allows her heart to continue on the path that she has chosen. You see, by opening her heart, God gave her what she already wanted. She put herself on the path to find Jesus, but God opened the door. So now I want you to think about your heart. Think about where your heart is. On what is your heart focused? Because the question is, where will you end up if God gives you the desire of your heart? Now, the easy answer is, well, I end up in heaven someday. But I think you have to back up a little bit and be incredibly honest with yourself and ask yourself, what is the true desire of my heart? What do I pray about? What do I talk about? What are my priorities? Because those things indicate the desires of your heart. And what if God just allowed your heart to continue? What if God gave you the desire of your heart? Whatever it was, whatever it is, The psalmist wrote in Psalm 37, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I think that's true. When we delight in the Lord, God allows our heart to continue to be open to him, who he is, what he's doing. But I think the opposite is also true sometimes. When our heart is set on things that the Lord does not delight in, that in those times sometimes he allows us to have those as well. If I seek fame or fortune, if I sing, seek social status or, or something that this earth, this world offers, he may allow me to have that, even if it means moving, walking away from him. And so we go back to that question. If God allowed you to have the desires of your heart, the greatest desires, the pursuits of your heart, where would you end up? What would it look like? Donald Miller wrote a book. It's called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And in this book, he talks about the writing process, especially writing fiction, plot development, character development. And he says something interesting. If you've ever done any writing, or even if you've read 
fiction books, you know this is probably true. He says characters, well-developed characters, they do whatever they want. They don't obey the writer or the author. The author can't make the character do anything because if a character is fully developed, he or she has his or her own perspective and mindset. He says you can't force them to do something as a writer because it would what? It would be out of character. And as he's reflecting on the writing process, he also reflects on his own life. And this is what he says. As I was writing, I became more and more aware that somebody was writing me. So I started listening to the voice. When I did this, I realized the voice, the writer, who was not me, was trying to make a better story, a more meaningful series of experiences I could live through. That's so well said. You see, God has given you the freedom to choose. All the way back, Adam and Eve, they were created with free will. They could choose for themselves. God does not control your heart, but he wants to open your heart so that you see him and know him and know his ways. We are like characters doing our own thing, making our own decisions. But if we would just stop, if we would just stop and listen to the voice, the writer who created us, who knows how it all ends, if we would just yield to him, our lives would write a so much more meaningful story. Is your heart seeking God? Truly seeking God? What is at the center of your heart? What do you pursue? What do you talk about? Where do you invest your resources? Is it God and godly things? If it is, I believe God will meet you there and he will bless you. That he will open your heart as he did Lydia. But if you choose to continue to close your heart to him, if you continue to close your heart to Jesus, to who he is, to what he wants to do in your life, your heart will become calcified and calloused toward him and his will for your life. I am convinced. I've seen it. You've probably seen it as well. But see, changed hearts lead to changed lives. True transformation only happens when there is a change of heart. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount addresses the heart because he knows that's where true change happens first. So where is your heart? What if God just gave you the desire of your heart? What would it look like? Where would you be? Is that where you want to be? I heard a story about a man who had extensive open heart surgery and his surgeon was a, a very skilled surgeon, but he didn't have necessarily a great bedside manner. After a day or two, they were ready to discharge the man from the hospital, and the man's wife asked the surgeon, she said, hey, what about my husband's quality of life after this? And the surgeon just sort of looked at her and said, I fixed his heart. His quality of life is up to him. If you've ever had heart surgery, you know that's true. You make those choices. The surgeon, the doctors can only do so much. 
It comes down to the choices you make every day. I think the same is true spiritually. God gives us free will. He wants to open your heart. He wants to work in your life. He wants to dwell in your heart. But ultimately, the quality of your life and your eternity is up to you. Will you surrender your life? Will you open your heart to God? Maybe today you're ready to open your heart to God, to who he is, to what he's doing. And maybe for you that means, like Lydia, responding to the gospel by confessing Jesus is the Son of God, by being baptized into Christ. And we would be so happy for you. We would celebrate with the angels in heaven over your decision to do that. Maybe it means getting encouragement or making changes or confessing sin or asking for prayers. Certainly we'd be happy to do that as well. We're going to stand and sing, and we'll have a couple of shepherds and their wives in the parlor, a room right behind me. And you can go out any of these exits and make your way there. They'd be happy to receive you and pray for you. Or you can come down to the front today as we stand and sing.